0: back to Playlist Profiles, the podcast that explores inspiring people and big ideas through the music that touches our lives. I am your host, Christy Schweigart, and I'm so excited to be with you here today with another amazing interview. And today's interview is with Sabine, and Sabine is an MPH candidate at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health. And we met one another through student government at Rutgers University. And I can honestly say that I have not met many other folks more dedicated to meeting communities where they are at in a way that Sabine does. And you can hear Sabine's thoughts about community-focused public health work, as well as what it's like to go from attending a large public institution for undergraduate work to then attending an ivy league school for graduate school and we also have a great conversation about the highs and lows of social media and how this pandemic has changed the way we use different online platforms i love this interview dearly and i know you will too and as you know in each episode i like to highlight different resources that i have been enjoying And this week's resource is perfect because our guest Sabine contributes to this. And so Sabine is part of uh, the program on forced migration and health, and that is through Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. And this particular resource is the COVID-19 and Migration Digest. And this digest is where you can sign up via email or click through the archive of past digests to get articles and brief summaries sent right to your inbox. And through this digest, you will learn about and stay updated on the intersection of COVID-19 and migration, which is something we can always be learning more about. And so all of this will be linked in the show notes, as well as highlighted on the Playlist Profiles Instagram page, at Playlist Profiles Podcast. Now let's get into the interview. Hi, everyone. I am back with Playlist Profiles, and I'm here with Sabine, and she's going to introduce
1: herself. Hi, everybody. I'm super excited to be on Christy's podcast today. I am Sabine Rocaria. I know Christy through college. We went to Rutgers University together, and we did a lot of fun stuff um, in student government together. And we also um, have similar interests in terms of what we've studied and some things that we want to kind of pursue in our careers. So we have that kind of connection through school. Um, I'm currently studying public health. I'm a graduate student at Columbia University getting my MPH. Um, and I graduated from Rutgers in May 2019 with a BS in public health. So I think I'm technically still a recent grad. <laughs> well, thank you so much for introducing yourself. Um, and of course,
0: right now it must be an interesting time to have already have a degree in public health and now be pursuing a master's of public health. Um, So what has that, what has it been like to watch the COVID-19 pandemic unfold the way that it has while also studying the system from an academic uh, perspective? What has that been like?
1: Well, it's definitely been very interesting. And I have to start by saying that I feel in a very unique way um, in an almost kind of strange way, very lucky, um, this is the first time in you know all of the history that I have studied in public health, that many have studied in public health, that the rest of the world that's not in public health kind of knows what public health means and knows about those two words in a sentence together. Um, It's a very interesting time that public health, the term and the concepts and the word epidemiology is in public discourse and people are Googling the word and talking about it with their families, um, people that are completely unrelated to the profession. So it's been really nice to kind of have people such as within my family or just in general Uh, for the first time, kind of know what I do in a little bit of a way (laughs) without me having to try to fully explain it. Um, So that's one really great thing. And I think, you know, I'm also really lucky is because I am being schooled in this, right? So I'm getting an education that is strictly for the understanding of things like pandemics and for the understanding of health disparities and for the understanding of the data that comes along with healthcare issues And all we're talking about right now is pandemic data, right? So I have these, a few of the skills to understand what some of the graphs mean and what some of the epidemiologists are exploring right now. Um, And it's, but it's also been really, really nerve wracking. I have to say that watching, watching the response, particularly in this country, and also closely following the responses in other countries, there's a lot that I didn't know before about things like pandemic responses. And I now I'm able to kind of see where there are gaps and where there are holes and where there are things that I know from, you know, whatever I've learned over the years, like shouldn't be happening or should be happening. Um, so to have that kind of insight has definitely been a little stressful. Um, I feel very lucky to have it, but I also know that because I'm you know just a student, I'm not a fully established professional, I have more knowledge than I have experience. I have a lot more textbook knowledge than I have experience, so sometimes I feel a little helpless in the response. Um, but it's been yeah, it's been very very interesting. I feel very lucky. I feel a little bit helpless too. Um, when the pandemic first you know came to New York City and came to the states in March, um, I felt very empowered. I was like you know this is my calling, right? It was yes. all the health students were like this is our time. So I worked so super, super hard to try to you know, send information to my family. I tried to be their, their go-to person. I, I did so much research because there wasn't that much info out then. I was doing so much and I was trying so hard, but I still kind of felt like a little bit of a loss. I think a lot of public health students kind of felt like a little bit of a loss.
0: Of course. And thank you for being um, so open about this and uh, speaking your mind because it definitely is a really tough... Um, it's a bunch of tough emotions to be experiencing at one time. Like it is amazing that more people know about public health and that it is an everyday term and practice that people know now. But when you are so passionate about what's going on, um, but you're not at that stage yet where you're able to contribute in a way that you would love to, it's definitely tough. Um, mm-hmm. So I totally hear you there. And have you – you mentioned that you were um, doing a lot of research and sending articles and information to your family. Do you see now that you are still the go-to person, that you're still the person that people come to about information, or or has that changed now that uh, this whole um, – crisis has become such a, I mean, it's just something that we're all kind of used to now, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's a good question because I, I think I have to start by saying that my family is very, um, I'm very, very lucky to be around, you know, parents that have been able to advocate for themselves in terms of healthcare and, and are in tune with things that are happening. So it hasn't been really difficult to keep them up to date because they're willing to kind of do the research themselves as well. Um, so for them, I wouldn't say, you know, that they a hundred percent come to me. I think we are able to engage in conversation. I think the articles that I was sending were things that they were receptive to because they were already engaged. Um, and I, I don't even want to say that I I want to be a go-to person in general because I, like I mentioned, I'm a student and there's so, much, so many people that, um, of course, have been doing this for so many years and have so much to offer. So I think that the role that I've kind of taken on or hope to take on is to amplify some of those voices, which we can talk about too. Um, I'm really trying to kind of, you know, if someone does ask me a question, I like to hopefully point them in the direction of someone who has either taught me or someone who's written something that I've read that I trust that is reliable, who's been doing the work for either years or is on the front lines or something like that. So if it does come about, I do like to point people in certain directions. I don't want to, you know, just start sharing the information that's coming out of my head, but I I I think that also, you know, having the internet in a pandemic is a very wondrous thing that we haven't experienced before, so I'm really grateful to see all of the information that's being shared and and so much of it is really good information. I know there's been a lot of concern about misinformation, which is something that I've been really really concerned about since the start, which is why I was I started sending, you know, articles to my family. But you know, people are so innovative and so brilliant and there's a, there's like incredible art that has come out of this as well that has been really informative, so I think having the internet in general has really given people a lot of autonomy over their own research and education, um, much more than, you know, students like me or, or me in general have.
0: Yeah. And that's so true. And I know, um, we'll touch on this a little bit later in the podcast, but, um, it's been great to see a lot of, um, a lot of academics in the epidemiology space and the public health space have a lot of these platforms on sites like Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram, and people are listening to them finally and sharing those helpful graphics. and And I think the mindset you have about pointing people in the right direction is um, so healthy. And I think a lot of us, even myself, need to continue to do that. And instead of always being the person to share information coming from ourselves or our own research is, um, I don't know, the skill of being able to point people in the right direction is just as valuable as as having that information on your own. So thank you um, for that. And I'll definitely use that advice. Um, Thanks. Of course. And kind of going um, back more to the fact that you are in graduate school at an amazing institution like Columbia, Um, a few guests in the past have have talked about um, their experience of going from a state school um, as an undergraduate to um, then pursuing master's or professional degrees at elite institutions like Columbia. Um, And a lot of people are scared about this transition, um, don't really know how to handle it. Um, So what has this transition been like for you going from a state school like Rutgers to um, an institution like Columbia?
1: I think that's a really good question. And I'm channeling back to exactly a year ago, right when I was the summer before I started graduate school, right when I was planning to move and really starting the transition. Um, So I would like to start by saying that going to Rutgers University and going to a state school in the Northeast and going to such a big school with um, such a, a diverse set of experiences is one of the best things that I think I've done in my life. I haven't done too many things but going to Rutgers was one of the best ones Um, primarily because I was exposed to a really big space where I could develop you know my own interests and do a lot of different things in a very big space. I I didn't really have I think the same kind of pressure that sometimes comes with going to a smaller more quote-unquote elite school where there's a lot more money involved. There's a lot more prestige involved. And sometimes there's a lot more academic pressure involved. Um, But with that said, I think, you know, when you're transitioning from that really big experience or that really diverse experience where you could kind of do your, your own thing and no one would really notice unless you wanted them to, then transitioning to a school like Columbia or another very expensive school. Um, there's a little bit of imposter syndrome, and I can't say that I didn't have that. I didn't know what graduate school would be like in general, so I think that a little bit of a little bit of the imposter syndrome had to do with, you know, what am I doing with my career in general? I'm going to more school without any work experience. I'm going further into debt. Like, what am I doing? Is this the right choice? But then there's also that, that that feeling that comes with, you know, I'm going to a school that is out of my comfort zone in a way. Like, I didn't feel like I was, quote unquote, Columbia material. Um, so moving to New York was just this whole whirlwind of feelings about the school, about my decision to go to graduate school, and then also moving to a really big city that I couldn't afford really and didn't know what I was doing there. Um So the transition was very hard. I was also, you know, going to school from a town that, like I was leaving a town that I had spent like 12 years in. You know, I went to Rutgers. I went to college in my hometown. I never really left. And so there was a lot of feelings, not just related to going to, you know, a bigger or a more expensive school. But then I have to also say that the graduate school experience that I've had is is like a typical graduate school experience, right? Where you're, when you're a graduate student, you're kind of sometimes removed from the typical undergraduate experience of going to like an elite or an Ivy League school. Um, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording that, you know, we feel a little bit sometimes removed, but maybe that's a good thing because we're kind of doing something that's a little bit Less associated with the school, but a little bit more personal to our research and our career and our our relationship with our professors. Rather than being at a large undergraduate institution and having you know everything be about the name in graduate school, I think it becomes a little bit more about your work that you're doing. Um, and this is obviously not generalizable, but in my experience, I think it's definitely been, you know, we're all there for public health, we're all there for the research that we're doing, we're all there for the professors. We chose to go to the school more because of the work and more because of the research than because of the name. Um, So I think that really helped with my transition. I think being there for that purpose really helped. And then also seeing that that was the environment of the graduate school. The graduate school itself is full of students that are coming from these really big state schools. Like Most of my peers actually at Columbia are from really big state schools. I have friends from Ohio State. I have friends from um, University of Illinois. I have friends from um, just really big schools, like some of the other Big Ten schools that um, Christy and I <laughs> <kind of> worked <laughs> with while we were in college, because Rutgers is also in the Big Ten. Um, since we were all coming from these really big state schools, and we were coming just to do public health, that really set a tone for the culture of our campus, of our graduate school campus, and it wasn't really about the Columbia name anymore. Um I know that's a really elaborate answer, but I think you know I was really nervous at first. I had a little bit of imposter syndrome, and then I kind of graduated into being really invested in my work and the people that I was working with, and all of us were feeling the same way um so it turned into something that was really, really special and has been really fruitful for me um I can't say that'll be the experience for everybody going to you know a graduate school that has that Ivy League name um I think I've also been benefited by the fact that my campus is not on the main Columbia campus because I'm a public health student. My campus is on the medical campus. So I'm Oh, a, interesting. Yeah, I'm a physically a little bit removed from the main happenings of the undergraduate campus and from the undergraduate like realm. Um, so that that academic pressure that might have happened if I was an undergrad there or some of that. Um that like the increased imposter syndrome that could have potentially happened, I think was diluted by the distance, but also, you know, the reasons that were there.
0: That's great to know. And I, I think what you said will really help people out there who are thinking about doing something similar, you know, coming from Rutgers and from the background um, that we had and then wanting to pursue um, further education at another elite institution and knowing that it could be a bit, um, different of an experience than, um, some of the, um, worries people have if they were to have gone on as an undergrad. Um, that's just good to know. I, yeah. and we actually did research at a similar institution at Rutgers and now you're doing research in graduate school. Is there, is there a difference there with, um, funding or how research is administered now that you are in graduate school? Like, what does that look like? I'm curious about that.
1: Hmm. That's a good question. I think it, it definitely is a little bit hard for me to relate a graduate school experience at, you know, Columbia to an undergraduate experience at Rutgers. Mm-hmm. I've always seen them to be in, in different bubbles because of they were just undergraduate versus graduate is a different experience. Um, But I have to say, there's one thing that I have noticed to be common, and this might be related to the research that we're we're talking about, is that Rutgers, like Columbia, or Columbia, like Rutgers, are both really big institutions that are situated in communities that aren't Columbia. So, for example, Rutgers University is situated in a, a very beautiful community that is the town of New Brunswick and also the town of Biscataway, but predominantly New Brunswick, which is a a community that is, you know, full of people of color that has been vibrant since way before Rutgers ever was there, um, and functions as a community that, you know, isn't, isn't completely, um, subsisting on the university. Columbia University similarly is in, you know, where I am. So the medical campus is in a community of a part of Manhattan called Washington Heights, which is, I think it is the, I don't know if this is a correct stat. It might be the largest City that's not the that's not in the Dominican Republic that is the Dominican city, um, in the world. But regardless of that, it is you know full of this big community or this vibrant community of Dominican people and Dominican immigrants and people that are from the DR, um, which are or independent and were there before Colombia you know laid its roots there and started building there. So in terms of research, I think the research that Christy and I conducted in. New Brunswick, or in at Rutgers, had a lot to do with our community. You know, we were living in a city that was called the healthcare city. We were living next to these two major hospitals that were providing care to the community that I just talked about. So, a lot of our research through our university and through our school was almost communicating or trying to talk to that community and to support it directly and to work with that community. Um, Similarly, I've seen the case, you know, at Columbia University, where we're doing public health work, and we're trying to work directly with the community. And some of the similarities and differences that I've seen have come through that relationship, the community relationship, or the school's relationship with the community, and and it feeding and talking to it, and supporting it and getting, you know, things from it. Um, So it's been a little bit interesting to see that parallel and to be able to notice the differences and also to notice the very um, big similarities between really big institutions working in communities in two completely different areas.
0: Yeah, I haven't even thought about that. The, so that's amazing. You get to have a little bit of that a familiarity with, with your research and, and where you're studying and what you're studying mm-hmm. um, with communities. So thank you for that. Thinking more big picture, what inspired you to pursue a, a career in healthcare in the first place?
1: Well, um, I kind of get this question a lot now that I'm in graduate <laughs> school, because uh, you know I'm around a lot of people that you know in graduate school, there's a lot of people that just discovered public health or have been thinking about it but weren't working in public health or never studied it before. And then there's people like me who have who studied it in college and got, you know, a bachelor's degree in public health. so i I chose to be in public health right at the start of college. I was. 17 when I was making the decision of where to go to school and what to study and at the time I wanted you know to be a doctor like many students. Um, it was something that I felt was you know important to me and I saw merit in the process and I saw merit in the results and I wanted to help people as many do um, but I saw the way to get there as being through public health. I didn't fully understand what the major was or what the the you know, what public health meant as many didn't before the pandemic. Um, but I saw it as a little bit more my tune than something like biological sciences. So I really went into it, you know, wanting to just be a doctor and wanting to, to be working one on one with people and supporting them and supporting people in communities that looked like mine. My family, you know, is South Asian. And so I wanted to, to you know, enhance the representation of us in healthcare and also support my people. Um but then i I actually you know started taking classes in the major and I fell in love with it and I was the same it wasn't related to my decision about medical school, but at the same time that I fell in love with public health and my public health coursework is also the same time that I genuinely decided to not pursue medical school. I didn't feel like it was for me it it takes you know a lot of time and energy, and it was taking you know. It was it was something that I just didn't see as fitting my end term goal that I was now developing while studying public health in my coursework. I wanted to support communities. I wanted to support Spanish speaking communities that I was meeting in New Brunswick through my coursework. And I saw the way to do that as, you know, through public health and through other things. Um, so really it just kind of stemmed from my always desire to be in healthcare, but then really falling in love with it while I studied it. and then. Having, you know, thankfully, and and I'm so grateful to have this, having a number of experiences in public health while I was in college, being able to shadow people and be an extern and be an intern and just really see all of these different parts of public health um, made me want to stay.
0: Yeah. And that's a beautiful story because I'm sure a lot of people experience that um, that same struggle with having a major that is supposed to set them up for something different, um, something different after school, like kind of how um, some people will major in economics and and political science to set them up for law school, but then they realize that they love working in the economic space. They love working in the political science space and maybe don't want to go to law school. And so um, it is amazing that you were able to get those experiences. And I think now, of course, we don't want to, experience pandemics and experience the fallout and the and the sadness that surrounds it. But now you can see the importance of how communities that are healthy and that are looked after and engaged with end up being healthier and um, and you know healthcare is so much more than a hospital and a doctor's office. So um, I'm really excited to see what you do in this space, and what you contribute, and um, what you find yourself. in. so, oh, thank, thank you so much. much. Thanks, Quakers. <laughs> be um,
1: you, because you've been studying healthcare too.
0: Yeah, and it's it's just such a vast space, and there's so much that can be done, um, so much that can be improved. So it needs anyone and everyone um, with all different interests to be involved and and stay curious
1: and stay. Um, engaged. So, yeah. yeah. I, think, I hope I so. think you do a great job of um, sharing those voices through your other, other podcasts, The Triage. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank We're you for listening. Everybody listening, please go check that out because um, <laughs> Natalie Ruchna and Christy are doing really great work sharing, you know, what needs to be done in healthcare and what's being done and talking about that.
0: Thank you. <laughs> Well, this uh, podcast is called Playlist Profiles because about four years ago, I realized that so many people connect so much with the music that they listen to each day and the artists that they love, um, whether it be just the sound of music or the lyrics that um, artists are saying. So I'd love to get to know you a little bit more through the music that you love. So, and I know you put together a playlist. So uh, walk us through your playlist and
1: why you chose the songs that uh, you put together. Sure. So hopefully I can make this interesting. Some of the songs on here are definitely just because I like them. Um, But I do, I have a little bit of a... um, personal story to some of the artists. So I'll go through them one by one. The first one, the first song is Wasteland by Tiara Wack. And I think she, Tiara Wack is really up and coming. Um, She's a pretty popular artist in some of my recommended playlists on Spotify. Um, And this song is generally one of the more popular ones that Tiara has put out. But Tiara Wack is just like a very cool artist. I think she has been, her presence has always been really, um, wonderful in this space and sometimes i'll just go through her tweets and she has a lot of fun things to say and, and is very she just doesn't seem like she's in it for the fame and she just doesn't really care about you know the fame that comes with her work although I, i'm sure she appreciates being noticed for her wonderful work but she's really just into creating good art and all of her art has always been uh really enjoyable to me so i definitely if you haven't heard of Tierra Wack, check out her her work she's a rapper i love her yeah. Oh, okay. So you do know about her. I don't know if she's like she's like pretty popular now, right?
0: Yes, a little bit. Okay. Yeah. My um my roommate has a funny shirt that says um that's whack and it's actually from one of Tierra's concerts. Um and oddly enough, a lot of her songs are in commercials now, which is kind of oh.
1: kind of I don't know. I didn't know fun. <laughs> yeah, she's she's like funny. I just think she's fun. Yes. I, mean, I really respect her. Agreed. Uh, so the next song I have is called Groceries. It's with, so I think it's by Chance the Rapper, but there's someone else featured in it and I don't want to exclude them, but it's not just him. But this is one of those songs that like, it's just really fun. I really like it. It, it lifts my mood a little bit as most Chance songs do for people. Um, so uh, I encourage everybody to check it out if they just want to have some fun. And the next one is Pienso en tu Mirá by Rosalia. And she is, I, I think that she's actually developing some fame now too. I'm not, I can't tell. I don't really know what people are listening to these days. He, i oh my goodness. I love, I love her work. Um, so this song is in Spanish. It, it, it is part of an album that I think actually is one of her most popular albums called Malamente or the song Malamente was, was like one of the top hits in that album so it made it to the front lines of popular music. Um, she is a artist from Spain and all of her music is in Spain uh, is in Spanish, but she, one of the things I love about her is that she has made flamenco music mainstream and she's been using a lot of the influences that she grew up using and singing with and learning about in her music and has made it really popular and enjoyable um, and is really bringing a, a part of Spanish culture to mainstream media that is incredible. Um, And she has this incredible talent to to exhibit it and to use it with. So she's just so wonderful. I encourage everybody to check out some of her work that is older, that is like a little bit less popular, um, because that's where you hear like some of her some of the things that she does with her voice. I just don't know how she does it. Um, So she she kind of represents me or this song kind of represents me exploring not just her work, but this whole other side of. Of spanish culture and spanish music that i really fell in love with right before i graduated college love it she's such a beautiful voice you've heard her too okay i think she's a popular artist um the next song is sofia by claire claro um clara is like this is a really good song Claro also is just like a really fun artist she's really young pretty popular now too but she's she I think she represents like the generation that is like right below me or right younger than me that's like up and coming and they're just like this really cool generation of of people that um are really artistic and really talented and and care a lot about the world more than I ever did when I was 16 or 17 um and this song is really sweet I listen to this song every single time that I drive So for me, it represents a little bit. I associate a lot of music with like times in my life that I listen to them. So even if the lyrics don't mean as much to me, they represent you know when I was listening to them, they represent that whatever I was going through while I was listening to them. Um, So I was listening to the song a lot last summer, right when I was transitioning from New Jersey to New York and moving to New York City. Um, And Sophia, this is the name of the song is called Sophia, and she it's just such a sweet song and. Um, I think it's about a girl that she likes or something, or the song is, the artist is, you know, singing about a girl that she likes. Um, So it's a really nice song. Um, The next one is I'm Good by by Wafia. And I'll start by saying that I'm Good is just a very, very catchy song. So it's really fun and it puts me in a really good mood. But this song, I think, is a little bit, you know, has a little bit more of a story um, because not only is the song fun and catchy, but the artist is also really cool. She, I remember looking her up and looking into her work, and she basically became an artist because she was studying something like the hard sciences. I think she was like studying neuroscience in college or graduate school or something like that. And she started making music in her room to kind of get away from the monotony of what she was studying. So she just started making beats and writing songs. And she became, you know, this incredible artist who's put out a few really fun songs. And she just did it because she wanted to, because it was fun. It was like a hobby. She wasn't one of those people who seems like she devoted her entire life to developing music. Um, And as, of course, people who do that have, you know, are incredible. And I, I love that they're in love with what they're doing. And I'm sure Wafia is too. But she's one of those people who to me, you know, someone who's like studying in school, like, oh, I could get up and do something fun. And it could be something that really benefits other people. And it's not necessarily central to my career or central to my entire life. Um, I really admire that because I kind of saw myself in her. And also she um, kind of looks like me and she comes from a background that is kind of in a similar to mine, um, which I also really admire and respect because it, you know, I'm really happy to see someone who looks like me becoming a, you know, a well-respected artist in, in the industry. So that's really nice to see and hear. And the last song I have on my list is Smoke and Mirrors by Toki Monsta. This song is probably the most, um, like of the songs on this list, this song is probably the most It has the most story to it for me personally. I, I mean, it's an incredible song. It's for me, it's like a little bit of a melancholy somber song, but it's just incredible artistry. It's all electronic. Toki Monsta is an incredible electronic artist. Um, but the song was just something that represented a time of my life in college and a time in which I was learning so much about the world and about life. And it was kind of, for me, like a really big arc, um, so I, when I hear it, I kind of think of you know everything that I went through in college you know, at that specific time that I was first listening to the song. And when I'm not trying to remember or be nostalgic, I listen to it for some of the tones that are in it and some of the incredible artistry that's come out of that song um, after, after it that she, that Toki Monster created. Um, and every time that I listen to it, I find something new, incredible about it. So I hope that everybody can enjoy it as much as I have. Yeah, I mean,
0: thank you so much. For all of these songs, because it's it's just nice to hear that songs can mean so much to you, whether it makes you remember happy times and just songs you listen to and you just want to feel good, and then songs like that where it brings you back to a time where you were going through a lot and it also has layers to it where you are listening to lyrics, you are reminded of of thoughts that you've had but you also are experiencing the the musicality and the the beauty of just the music of everything and so thank you for time that you put into making your playlist and for walking us through it because I know it's definitely not easy to pick a handful of songs to represent your whole life because there's a lot of life to live but yeah. um <laughs> yeah i i'm excited that um more people will hear about this music and and even if one of their favorite artists was mentioned that they'll feel community in that and they'll feel um seen and heard by this by this interview and by your playlist so thank you thank you of course well the next couple of topics i have in mind we've already kind of touched on them so we're just going a little bit deeper um, and I think there are topics that are very important today and now, as we, as more people and more young people, especially, become more aware of what real life is, honestly, and and want to stay engaged and want to continue making change. I think the next couple of things we're going to talk about will definitely help with that. So if you're out there listening and and want to know how to continue staying engaged with what's going on and how you can lift other voices up and, um, do that in whatever way you want to do. Um, yeah, just listen closely. So (laughs) we, unfortunately, but also fortunately, because truth is power and it leads to change. Um, but we are experiencing multiple crises all at once, um, and have been experiencing them Um, and a lot of them, a lot of the truth about these crises have come out because of social media and the fact that we all have a lot more time to consume this information and this truth. And like you touched on before, and like I've seen you do on Twitter and LinkedIn, um, you've done an incredible job at uplifting other voices and ensuring that information is spread effectively. Um, and so why did you start doing this? And why do you think it's important for all of us if we feel comfortable to continue sharing and amplifying other voices online?
1: Sure. So yeah, I did mention a little bit about how it's really amazing in a way that we have the internet during something like this. Um, There has been so much good information come through to people who may not have had it otherwise. And of course, it's not reaching everybody who should have it. But it's definitely reaching a lot more people than it did in like 1918, for example. Um, And also, you know, I I do want to say that, I mean, of course, there's the good information. And of course, there's the bad information. Um, But more than that, the internet and social media at a time like this is absolutely a double edged sword. I have a very interesting relationship with social media on a personal level, I generally tend to avoid it. Um in the middle of college I completely left all social media because I realized that it was causing more stress for me than actual enjoyment. Um I first left Instagram because I didn't see as it as personally benefiting me and then I left Facebook because I just was wasting time on it, I wasn't getting anything from it and I never had a Twitter. So I was just one of those people who who was social media less. Um and it made my life better to not have social media. I was more productive. I was able to still stay in touch with the things that I cared about and with the people that I cared about. So when, when, when you know, your question is a little bit about why or, or my role on social media and why I do what I do now, it's, it's not, it, you know, my personal relationship with social media is really difficult, but I see social media for me as something that is the, uncomfortable cost for something that may have a greater benefit yeah so I for when I first made my twitter I made my twitter in February of 2020 so I made it just a few months ago and I didn't make it you know the pandemic was not really a thing in the states at that time Um, I made the first tweet that I ever really made was about the um, plastic bag ban in New York City. It was like, compl- it was like, there's nothing really that quote unquote, interesting happening on Twitter at the time. But I remember <laughs> it because I saw myself in a field in a career in a in a role, as a person in public health, whose job whose entire career and everything that I've ever been interested in relies on collaboration, it relies on other people, the word public is not about me, it's about everybody else. So I was in a field where I knew that my life and my job and my goal was to collaborate and that was what everything that I'm ever going to do is going to be based on. And being without social media kind of kept me away from some of the voices that I wanted to hear. I wanted to be able to engage with the conversations and discourse in my fields that was happening outside of my classroom. And I saw Twitter as the way to do that. And I saw, you know, I was doing it on LinkedIn. I've been very active on LinkedIn for a very long time, but LinkedIn is different, right? It's not the same. You know, everybody's posting about every single thing that they're thinking. Um, And Twitter, I saw so many people in public health on Twitter. I saw so many of my professors on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. I I started it as a, you know, this is a place for me to engage with discourse and really just to read. It was like, I don't have anything to say. I just want to read with other people in my they're talking about so I was really strategic about who I followed and what I was sharing and I was trying to be super low-key so that was my original purpose for joining Twitter it was for me to learn even though it caused me you know physical anxious feelings because I didn't want to be on social media so that was a really big challenge for me Um, but I saw it as you know my discomfort was the cost for me being a better public health professional And that's not the case for everybody. You know, of course, you can be absolutely wonderful at your job without having a Twitter account, not trying to to insinuate that or imply that. But for me, I saw it as a way to stay connected to people that I knew were doing things that I cared about. And I had to at some point, you know, be uncomfortable to get something that or to do something that I thought was worthwhile. But then, you know, February 2020 happened. It was like the last week of February, I think. But then, you know, the first case of COVID came to New York City and, and Twitter erupted. It truly erupted, and I saw this as a space for everybody to share information, and then I saw misinformation, and then I felt really empowered, and I felt it really, really important to share the right info and to direct people in the right direction. So I, I used that. I took that momentum. I took whatever I had learned in class, and I started sharing it. I started retweeting my professors that I really trusted, who I still really, really stand by. There was one person who really inspired me to continue amplifying voices, and he is a um, One of the professors in my department, his name is Craig Spencer, and he's been really renowned since this all started and, of course, before because he had done a lot of work for Ebola. And he actually was, you know, there was this really big case in 2015, I believe, in which he had contracted Ebola while working in West Africa, I believe. I think it was West Africa. And he came to New York and he was that case of Ebola that was in New York that was a really big deal that year. Um, So he's been on the front lines like since forever and he's been doing this and has really taken to social media specifically, particularly um, to share his work and to talk about it and to really, really provide a professional, well-experienced voice in the matter. Um, And so really just kind of like sharing his stuff and taking his momentum and throwing it to people that I knew weren't seeing it because we all have a different type of um, following that we have and that we're doing, that we're following So I really, you know, it started as kind of, I don't want to say that I was really intentional about it, because I wasn't, I wasn't really intentional about making a Twitter. It started as something that was for me. But then I was like, you know, I've developed this platform, I have, you know, half an MPH. (laughs) So let me talk about public health here. And then things kind of kept happening, right? We had COVID-19. And then we had you know, everything that's been happening with the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and, and so really, really, really important discourse has been happening on Twitter that's been hard for me to detach from. Um, so I've learned so, so much. And I think that the more that I learn, that means that the more others can learn, of course. And so I felt, you know, the urge and the need to share it and to share things that I was thinking, hopefully that they would help, you know, hoping that they would help other people. Um, so it's it's just, you know, I'm part of... I. I don't want to say that I'm like a cog in the wheel, but I can't say that I really went into this, you know, knowing that I would have any kind of impact. I, I just felt like I wanted to learn and have therefore been learning and hopefully, you know, helping others learn as well.
0: Of course. And I I definitely admire you, admire you a lot for that because I am someone who has wanted to leave social media for so long now. And the only thing that has kept me on it especially twitter is because that is where i see a lot of the truth about the world and about hearing from people who are actually experiencing the things that we hear about on the news so yeah. it really it like you just said it's hard to balance the two emotions and the two desires of life of wanting your own happiness and your own safety and then also wanting to stay informed and i think that's going to be An even bigger balance that we have to make ongoing because of the role that social media now has in life, and so you have a really healthy way of thinking about that. And um, I'll definitely need to now reassess again. And I think a lot of people are are experiencing that that now too with social media, unfollowing people that aren't serving them anymore or um, making them feel good about themselves, and then following people who are spreading great information like professors that you have, or um, people who have been doing um, a lot of anti-racist education for a while. Like, now people are starting to reinvent what they're what they're following, and I think that that is is great to hear as well. Um, mm-hmm. So hopefully, we see uh, the more positive sides of social media um, as we as we grow. Mm-hmm. And you said a lot of your social media work centers around the idea that you want to be collaborative in the public health work that you do. You want to build communities and hear from communities. And that is something that I've admired about you for a while um, and how you effectively immerse yourself in different communities um, and working with them in a way where you're meeting them where they are at and you're taking in what they are saying instead of Putting your thoughts and your expertise on the communities—it's, yeah, it's collaborative. Um, and now it's—it's it's definitely difficult to partake in the same work because you're not able to physically meet with communities and be around them. Especially, you know, where you're going to school now, you can't physically be there anymore. So, how have you been able to recreate this type of work while staying at home? And you know, what has that been like for you, not being able to engage in with communities the same way that you were able to uh, before the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I think it's definitely, of course, things have really changed in terms of our research overall, especially if we're doing community-based participatory research. We're not physically able to work with the communities that we'd like to as much. Um, But that doesn't mean that we aren't. For example, you know, one of the Projects that I've been working on is with an agency that caters to people that are living with HIV in New York City. And that agency has really well adapted to provide its services, particularly its um, support groups and some of its other case management services remotely, right? So we have a lot of our our clients, yeah, we've had a lot of our clients who so desperately wish that they could come into the agency and receive their services and be part of their support groups that have done so much good for them. But, you know, we are adapting and we're, we're hosting them over zoom and we're, we're engaging with our people, you know, just by texting and calling them every day instead of, you know, being able to see them come into the agency. So it's definitely an adaptation. I can't say that, you know, all of services have stopped because they haven't and, and they should not. Um, but it's been challenging because of course we have people who either don't have the resources right to do things over the internet or to to join zoom calls and things like that but also people that that generally benefit from in-person conversation and in-person meeting um, especially if it relates to you know research people want to have the autonomy in a conversation and it's not the same when you're just emailing them um you're talking about you know research that they're also involved in um so it's been a challenge, but that's kind of one of the examples that I can think of of being able to still engage with the community. But I've definitely lost out on some of the opportunity to do some of that work, you know, for me on a professional level. I was supposed to this summer do work um, in a different country, so in an international space, um, but directly with a community-based organization in that country. And so I was I was going to be working directly with clients of that agency uh, which I can't do. And I can't say that the agency even now is continuing that work to see their own clients without me being there. It's definitely a lot different, uh, especially in a place that isn't um, as structurally um, prepared to handle the pandemic and isn't able to test as much. Things are really, really scary and difficult in some places. Um, so it's it's been, you know, there's been a lot of, I would say, lost opportunity in general, but then there's also been a lot of adaptation, um, it's been a struggle, but I, wa- I, want, I want to mention one thing that I, on a personal level, basically what I've, you know, tried to do in the meantime, and one of the reasons that I'm still on Twitter, even though it stresses me out so much, um, <laughs> is because it is that way to stay engaged, right, so whenever, you know, when the first protests broke out after the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, the, that was like the first week of June, I believe, I was physically in quarantine in my room. I was self-quarantining because of an exposure that I had. So I was like physically not able to leave my room and I couldn't even like go to the kitchen um, because I didn't want to put my parents at risk. And being in that room during a, such an incredibly, you know, important time where I just wanted to be outside was very hard. It was like, it's not that I just couldn't even leave my house, but I, I literally felt like I had no voice for for a few days. So I used Twitter. I was on Twitter. I was reading. I was retweeting all of these people. I was trying to amplify, you know, really, really great black voices in science and science and public health and astro and all of these different things that I was seeing, these incredible threads. I used Twitter to stay engaged with the community that I wanted to be a part of and that I wanted to support. Um, so that's kind of how I found my way at that time. And it was really helpful. I think sometimes when we are going through things like collective grief or collective pain, we want to be fully immersed in it. And I, you know, this is kind of a sad example, but when some, when you lose somebody or when a funeral happens, sometimes the best way to go through that grief and to process it is to be at the funeral instead of, you know, being states and states away. Um, Sometimes you want to be in it. Sometimes you want to share the pain with people that are actually experiencing the pain in person Um, and it's hard to do that when you're in quarantine. So I think using social media has been a little bit of a tool, although it's, it's very hard because social media also doesn't stop, um, a balancing act, but yeah, I've, I've been engaged with a couple of organizations, um, specifically one that is providing services actively to its clients and then also doing what I can through social media and, and just checking in on people and checking in with people and talking with them.
0: Definitely. And that's an important point to make because during this pandemic, so many people have um, have had a hard time balancing wanting to physically show their support um, for the Black Lives Matter movement and for a lot of the change that we want to see in our country and around the world, while also wanting to keep our families safe and ourselves safe. Um, and so it's great to know and to spread the word that, you know, sharing other voices and sharing resources online can be powerful. And um, it's important to spread that information because there are so many people who are immunocompromised who can't engage in in in-person work and they feel like their work is not or their activism right now isn't as valuable, but it really is. Um, Information is power and uplifting other voices is power. Um, So yeah, thank you for touching on that. And I know this is very long right now, Um, so thank you for (laughs) staying on the line and giving such great thoughts. And I don't want to brush over this point, um, so if you don't mind if we still um, touch on this, but as we're talking about activism and sharing information online and truth online, especially via Twitter, a lot of truth about people who... I've looked up to, um, who you've looked up to, have come out. um, And especially in the, in the activist space and the change making space. And I think this does come from the, the metric based um, approval that social media brings into our lives and LinkedIn and just how all of our information and all of our accomplishments are online instead of, you know, in our office or on our resume. Mm -hmm. And so that, increases the amount of, I heard this new term, cloudivists who, um, you know, are engaging in activism and trying to spread information, but then do benefit, um, monetarily or with clout about what they are engaging in. Um, so, and I know we've talked about this and you've shared great information about this online, but like, what, what can we do to, move society back to that human first activism and that activism that is collective and collaborative rather than just us back, um, us moving behind one single person. Um, it's, I don't, I'm having a hard time explaining what I'm saying, but I don't know. I feel like we've moved away from collective activism into focusing on one single voice or a few single voices in a space and thinking that if we are not that top voice or that top person in that space that there isn't room for us, Um, how do you think we can bring everyone back to the true meaning of activism and and improving life for everyone?
1: That's a very, very good question. I think it's it's definitely a very difficult one because like everything, you know, activism is not black and white and it's very nuanced and there is a gray area and many of us, almost all of us, are not in a position to judge each other's activism unless we see activism as something, you know, someone's actions are doing someone harm, you know, until we physically see that it's, it's difficult for us to judge other people and we shouldn't. Um, But I guess that, you know, leads me to something that I I think is really important is the concept of self-reflection. So if we are choosing to retweet a tweet or to, post a black square on Instagram or to, you know, post that we've donated something or done something or, or share something as, you know, an individual action that we have partaken in. It is our responsibility to personally reflect on where that's coming from and why and how we're doing it and the implications of our actions. Um, And it is our personal responsibility to take accountability for things that are either harmful or detrimental to a greater movement Or just don't have, you know, the best underpinned intentions. Um, I think that cancel culture has been a part of this conversation when we're talking about, um, you know, you use the term cloutivists, which I actually haven't heard, but it kind of reminds me of the argument that I saw on Twitter about people, particularly, you know, posting a black square on Instagram and and diluting an important hashtag during um, the first few protests for Black Lives Matter. I think. Cancel culture has definitely been something that has been really harmful and detrimental, not just to individuals lives, but to greater movements, Um, often distracted from really important messages and really important discourse. And I think that. The reason I talk so much about self-reflection is that accountability, I see accountability as enforcing and, and people to take accountability for certain things, I do see as a bit of a distraction from a greater and important message sometimes. Um, I see accountability as a very internal process for someone, and I really encourage everybody who chooses to be active and who chooses to share things and to, to share their voice and to use their platforms, which I greatly respect, everyone who does choose to do that, um, I think should understand and kind of sign a mental contract with themselves about them committing to a constant reflective process, a constant process of accountability, both good and bad. Um, And once we kind of normalize that and define activism as a self-learning and unlearning process with actions that are also hopefully affecting others positively but ultimately underpinned by constantly learning and unlearning and and reevaluating ourselves, that is the day that we will become the best activists possible. I think the best activists have shown us that they have done these individual processes and do them every single day and write about them and think about them and reflect on themselves and express humility um, either openly or not openly. Um, But I think that's kind of, you know, we talked a little bit about earlier, you know, what, what, human first activism looks like and human first activism does not need to be who your activism is does not need to be about who your activism is targeting but it can be about the human who is doing the activism it can be about you know our personal evaluation of ourselves as humans and then producing action out of that well
0: said well said thank you so much and yeah i just think during this time it's so important to internalize all of that and think about why we do the things that we do or say the things that we say. So thank you. Yeah. Um, and to finish off, and thank you again for sitting with me for so long, um, what is something that made you happy or hopeful in the past month? And it doesn't have to be anything big or grand. It's We are living through a tough time right now, and even yeah. little things help you get through the day. So what is something that has made you happy in the past month?
1: I love this question. I, I'm so happy you included it. Um, so it wasn't the past month of this. I have two things. One's kind of big, one's kind of small. Um, but the first one didn't happen this past month. But I do have a new nephew who was born in May. That's been oh my gosh, very- congratulations. Thank you. Oh. Yeah, it's been experiencing a birth in a pandemic is a wild experience. Um, but I am very, very grateful. Everyone's okay. And Um, My parents and my sister and and her family have really been enjoying this time with um, their new brother and son, Um, and he's wonderful, so I'm really happy about that. And then yesterday, I dyed my hair blue, so that made me happy.
0: (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I might um, do something like that, too. So hearing that you did that and are feeling great joy from it, I may have to follow
1: suit. It's definitely (laughs) – Now is the time. I know no one's really gonna see it, but like I see it, that's all that matters. So
0: that's all that matters. I support you. Well, <laughs> thank you so so much. This was an amazing conversation. Thank you for opening yourself up and giving advice. And yeah, I just thank you, thank you, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me.